Welcome back, listeners, to The Bible Never Said That, a podcast where we talk about popular sayings that make their way through culture and churches, even though they are theologically unsound. My name is Shara Donahue, and today we're exploring the saying, everyone is inherently good. Now, I know this one can be a bit controversial, but it is clear the Bible doesn't say that. Can I tell you, though, I wish this was true. I wish I could trust that people are just good, or at least they start out that way, because it is much easier to live in a world where this feels like the truth. How nice it would be to walk down the street in the dark and not wonder if the footsteps behind us belong to a friend or a murderer. Truth is, more often than not, those footsteps simply belong to neither of the extremes, but just another self-focused person hoping they can pass you in peace. And it's that self-focus that leads us to love this idea of built-in goodness. But it is also that self-focus that causes us to break the first commandment, to not have any gods before God. Many don't realize how often we break this commandment. We try to be our own God from the beginning. After I had my own children, I quickly became aware that I was raising a bunch of dearly loved, dearly loved sinners. Whether their inherent self-rule came in the form of a bite, a tantrum, or a loud no from baby lifts, it should be obvious to anyone that has ever been around a toddler that we are sinners by nature. But society likes to think everyone must be inherently good because we like to think of ourselves as inherently good. But not only is everyone not inherently good, we aren't either. And quite simply, we don't like that, because we know why we chose what we have chosen in the past, and we like to think that we have pretty good reasons for our bad choices. We are masters at justifying our actions, but that doesn't equal justification for our souls. We let sin's lies slither in and sell us on why choosing what we want, even if it goes against what God says, is a great idea. We like to think we must be good. We couldn't start off selfish and sinful. That's just too dark. We look at our stance on this saying like it is a statement of our optimism or our pessimism. We say to ourselves, I want to choose the glass half full. So I choose to believe people are basically good. But sadly, that's not optimism, but ignorance. And even if we try to ignore it, we know it. I tell you this as someone who can be optimistic to a fault. But even with all the idealism I like to let float around me, I have come to realize that real hope, true hope, comes from looking at the problem of sin and knowing that Jesus solved it. Holly Haas writes that we don't like to identify ourselves as the poor, captive and blind. But if we doubt our need, we miss the good news of the gospel. There are many unflattering, difficult truths about who we are as sinful humans, and we like to doubt them. That underlying doubt pulls us away from the great freedom that is in Christ. If we pridefully strive, we may look good on the outside but miss out on the power of the gospel that sets us free. If we want this freedom, we can't fake righteousness. 
But instead, we have to face the truth of the yucky unrighteousness that lives within us. Tim Keller, working from Definitions of Sin by Soren Kierkegaard and C.S. Lewis, says, Sin is not simply doing bad things. It is putting good things in the place of God. So the only solution is not simply to change our behavior, but to reorient and center the entire heart and life on God. Scripture just does not support the idea of our goodness on our own. And obviously, neither does the world we live in. Psalm 143.2 states, Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one, no one living is righteous before you. And Romans 11.32 says, For God has bound everyone, everyone, over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all. The biblical fact remains. Sin corrupts entirely. There is not a piece of our being or creation that has not felt the corruption of sin creeping beneath its skin. We are sinners by nature. And it started in the garden when the first person questioned if God really said and chose their own way over God's. And our hearts still long for Eden, where everything was good, where there was not sin, the days when the waves of hurt didn't, couldn't approach the shores of our lives. There is something within us that knows we were created for something more than the chaos and the depravity we see at work in the world around us. We feel the fingerprints of God upon our souls, for he created us in his image. This is the Imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God, which sinful as we are, we still do have. We bear that image. What a privilege to be made in God's own image. Every, every human Christian or not bears the image of God in their created being. And because of that, we should love one another, be kind to one another, but we also sin against each other and despise the other, which awakens the desperate ache of loss that we feel because we don't live in a perfected world with a peaceful humanity. This loss was experienced when Adam and Eve took that bite of the forbidden fruit. It's loss we all felt when we indulged in our own forbidden fruits. Romans 3.23 comes as a harsh reminder that humanity has been tainted. It says, for all. We get that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What devastating news this is without the truth of the gospel. We all have chosen the ways of the world at some point, instead of resting in the truth of our great God. We have trusted in our own self and have experienced and inflicted sorrow. These truths of what the world is like and who we are without God can tempt us to despair instead of hope, because it seems easier than being disappointed yet again when another relationship, a job, a dream that we thought would finally fill us, fails us. It is a tragedy that we see and feel the effects of the way sin has deeply rooted itself into the foundation of our world, and we feel it wrap around the walls of our heart 
We live in a fallen world and see the devastation sin reaps on humanity as the devil seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. But the good news is that's not the end of the story. Thank God that is not the end of the story. Jesus came so we might have life. And we see the first glimpse of that redemption quickly after Adam and Eve sunk their teeth into sin. So let's do a quick recap. God creates world. God creates man. God sees that it is good. God tells man, don't eat from that tree. Man questions, did God really say? And listens to the serpent and then eats from the tree and everything changed. For sin had just tainted the goodness God lovingly gave to the people he created. Now, God addresses the serpent in the garden. In Genesis 3, 14 through 15, we see God say, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's really easy to skip over the importance of this moment. But if we do, we miss out. We've all felt the bite of the serpent upon the heel of our life. But the more important question to ask is, have you trusted in the one who crushed his head? The serpent, who is the devil, will be destroyed by the seed of Eve. And here, right here in Genesis, right at the beginning, is the gospel in shorthand. Here we see two elements foreign to the garden. The curse on mankind because of humanity's propensity towards evil and God's provision for a savior who would take that curse upon himself. Theologians call this moment the Proto-Evangelium. The serpent will be destroyed. Good news, a savior is coming. God addressed the serpent first, but did not let Adam and Eve off the hook. Though the temptation was placed by the serpent, Adam and Eve made their choice, and we have chosen to. Chosen to ignore what we know God would have us do. Chosen to disregard his law of love as old-fashioned principles. Chosen to believe that God would understand why we didn't listen to him because of our circumstances. And he does understand. He understands that we chose sin. He understands that these choices away from him separate us from his glory. And so he loves us. He relentlessly pursues us so that we might be with him near him, welcomed into his glory. He holds us in his grip, but the price was high to rescue those of us who have fallen short, a price too great, too heavy for us to reach. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to live the sinless life we could not. We get so familiar with this story that we no longer process the terror within it. We get so afraid to say that the price for sin is spiritual death leading to an eternity in hell that we make up stories to help us sleep at night, like everyone is inherently good. The greatest danger in telling this story is that nowhere does it point to the need of a savior, and instead it tries to glorify man with glory man does not deserve. We say man isn't so bad but we forget that a judgment day is coming. Even our good deeds are like filthy rags to a glorious God. And we cannot forget it because when that day comes, when every knee will bow to the King of creation, 
Some will be forgiven and some will be left to their own righteousness of filthy rags and self-focused intention. I hope you can hear that I say this with a broken heart. I can tell you honestly that I don't like this. And if it wasn't life-threatening important, I would have skipped talking about it. I don't like that if those I love don't come to know Christ, that their righteousness, no matter how good, will not be good enough. But just because I don't like it, or you don't like it, doesn't keep it from being what the Bible says. It doesn't keep it from being true. Hebrews 12 has a warning for us that we must take to heart. It says, starting at verse 14, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone, and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral, or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. There will be a day when we will not be able to change what we have done. But we can find holiness through Christ so that it is his righteousness that justifies us on judgment day. May we not refuse him. I have seen the redemption of Christ reach into the parts of me that were submitted to sin and make them new. And I believe Jesus will do the same for any who trust him. But that doesn't make God tame or within my control. He remains a consuming fire worthy of both fear and love. He is both fully just and full of goodness and mercy. Further along in that same chapter of Hebrews, we see instruction given to the church. The writer of Hebrews says, To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, and now he has promised. Once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Gosh, I love that last verse. Our God is a consuming fire. In the last couple of years, I've had multiple friends lose their homes to the wildfires in California. Let me tell you something they understand that most of us don't. 
when a consuming fire comes for you, there's no going back to get photos or happy memories. It takes everything. Nothing's left. Even things that you thought could stand the test are gone. They've turned to ash. Such are all the things that we use to build up our self-esteem. To say, this is my goodness. When we come face to face with the holiness of God, those things, those filthy rags, those ash heaps will be sitting there. But if we have turned to Jesus, he says he took our place and he paid our price. I recently heard biblical counselor, Dr. John Henderson, speak at the Made to Minister conference. And he made this very compelling remark. God is inevitable. And if like me, you've seen the latest Avengers movie, all you can think about after hearing this is the voice of the antagonist. Thanos. Henderson talked about how the inevitableness of knowing that Judgment Day is coming should bring terror to the non-Christian. The good news is that though God is inevitable, his isn't so in the same way Thanos claimed to be. God is not the egotistical villain, right? He's not this purple guy with a big sword that's coming after you and has his magic stones, but the Lord of the universe. This is a God who commands our attention because of his infinite value and worth. He is sovereign, but also merciful, good and wise, a God who rescued, a God who brings life to dead souls. Jesus is the hero, the savior, the only way to God. And though he has compassion for the lost, he still should be held in reverential fear. For he is the king of peace, who also makes war on sin. We need to refuse to let sin dwell in us. We must take it seriously. Holiness is a fierce attribute, and it is something worth pursuing. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Reverence for God equates to a holy fear of Him. And outside of the scriptures, nothing has taught me about the fear of God, like Niagara Falls. On the Canadian side of Niagara, you can stand safely behind a guardrail and look right at where the waters pour an average of 600,000 gallons of water a second over a 167-foot drop. Now, this is a majestic and powerful cascade that is world-famous, and I witnessed it firsthand on an anniversary trip. But I was struck by the sheer force and intensity of the water. It sparks this deep fear and awe within as you look at it. It is clear that one wrong step and this natural beauty this glorious sight could wipe you out in an instant. Its power is beyond what our eyes alone can perceive, and it should not be mistaken for just a thing of beauty or something that is wonderful but not dangerous. It is a force.
which will overwhelm you if you approach it unwisely or irreverently. How much more so should we have this understanding of God? How many times should we remind ourselves how grateful we should be that we have been saved, that the gospel is not something to get comfortable with, but something to share with all who need to be rescued from sin, sin that tears us away from the greatest beauty, the most mighty power, a God whose wrath is like a lion, but whose mercy endures. Ephesians 2, 4-6 through says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. He is God and we are his. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. All fall short of the glory, His glory. God is glorious. He is love. He is bigger and better than any of the things we turn to when we do not turn to Him. And He has made a way for us to be with Him through Christ. He is God. And he is the only one who can make you good. Each episode, I like to make sure we pray together at the end. Because we should not just be hearers, but we should be doers of the word. And we need God's strength to do that. So Lord, help us to see our sin. Not so shame can take hold of us, but so we can see your grace more. Thank you for your mercy and the gift of your son that we did not deserve. Transform our self-centered hearts to ever be reaching for you. You are good. Help us to understand that and to not be tempted to think more highly of ourselves than we should. Help us to understand holiness and how to seek it out. Give understanding that fears and respects your power and hearts that draw near to the redemption and love you offer us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Phew! Thanks for sticking with me. This was a tough one, but so valuable. The resources, books, and articles referred to can be found in the show notes at crosswalk.com slash podcast or on iTunes. And if you're over in the notes, we'd love if you would rate and review this podcast so others can find us. Until next time, may you seek the abundant life Jesus died to give and live in the truth that sets people free.
Want to learn more about God and his will for your life one verse at a time? I'm Quinice Petway, co-host of the Your Daily Bible Verse podcast. I'm inviting you to tune in and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.